Welcome back to another episode of In the Labyrinth of Death, the podcast where we explore the choices people make in disasters and whether those choices keep them alive. I'm Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're talking about avalanches. I've always found mountaineering disasters really, really fascinating. I think half the books I've read in the last three years were about people dying on Everest or other like big mountains. So the whole idea of avalanches is really fascinating to me, and I, I think this is going to be a good one. And like with every episode, remember, we're not experts of any kind. We just really don't want to die, but we like researching and talking about ways that people do die so that we can avoid dying ourselves. So please listen to the full disclaimer at the end of the episode and don't sue us. We're just two regular people. So here's our opening story. On February 23rd, 1910, a train called the Spokane Express... Fuck me, Spokane. The Spokane Express left Spokane en route to Seattle. Three days later, the train made it through the Cascade Tunnel and then ran into a blizzard in the Cascade Mountains. It was an insane blizzard. It was snowing up to like a whole foot in an hour. One day they got 11 feet and like literally one day, 11 feet of snow. And that blizzard actually ended up lasting nine days. Anyway, after the Cascade Tunnel, our train became stuck in a snowdrift outside the town of Wellington, which was unfortunately directly underneath the peak of a mountain called the Windy Mountain. So workers tried to clear the snow around the train, but to no avail. They were basically just stuck there. And due to the weather conditions and the remoteness of the train, everyone ended up having to stay on the train and just wait it out in the snow. Then on February 28th, after being trapped on the train for five whole days, they got hit by a thunderstorm in the middle of February, which is just crazy. The accompanying rain likely damaged the structural integrity of the snowpack on the mountain above. Then, in the worst stroke of luck probably ever, on March 1st, lightning struck the mountain above the train and created an avalanche that hurtled down the mountain towards both the town and the train. Now, this avalanche was 10 feet high, over a quarter of a mile wide, and half a mile long, so that's an insane volume of snow rushing towards them. One rail worker, whose name was Charles Andrews, who survived, I think he was in the train depot, not on the train, described the avalanche as, quote, white death moving down the mountainside above the trains. Relentlessly, it advanced, exploding, roaring, rumbling, grinding, snapping, a crescendo of sound that might have been the crashing of 10,000 freight trains. It ascended to... Descended? <laughs> I can fucking talk. <laughs> it descended to the ledge where the sidetracks lay, picked up cars and equipment as though they were so many snow-draped toys, and swallowing them up, disappeared like a white, broad monster into the ravine below. Another survivor described it as, quote, There was an electric storm raging at the time of the avalanche. Lightning strikes were vivid, and a tearing wind was howling down the canyon. Suddenly there was a dull roar, and the sleeping men and women felt the passenger coaches lifted and borne along, when the coaches reached the steep declivity, they were rolled nearly 1,000 feet and buried under 40 feet of snow. So for the people on the train, there was nothing they could do, even though they heard it coming. When it impacted the train that the passengers were on, as well as a nearby mail train, they were both thrown 150 feet into a gorge, and they were buried under 40 to 70 feet of snow. The avalanche also took out the nearby train station in Wellington, as well as all the telephone wires. So without being able to get outside help, the townsfolk began digging for survivors by themselves. They managed to rescue 23 people, many of whom were seriously injured. 96 people died, and it took them months to be able to actually dig them all out due to the ongoing weather issues. They ended up renaming the town Ty because of the bad association with the name Wellington. Then they made a new way through the Cascade Mountains, basically a new tunnel. 
and the town formerly known as Wellington was abandoned and then burned. And I don't know if that was intentional or not. So they changed the name of the town from Wellington. To Ty. Yeah. So the town was originally Wellington. And I think that's the name of the train station, too. And then they were like, something so bad happened here. We don't want to be associated with the name Wellington anymore. So now we're the town of Ty. And then they built a new path through the Cascade Mountains. Then it becomes a ghost town. And then it burns. I feel like there's like a whole story in there somewhere. And it's just lost to time and history. Oh, there's got to be a story. And I don't believe in curses, but it feels like the whole area. Like, becoming a ghost town and being burned feels like some seriously bad mojo. Yeah. According to National Geographic, quote, an avalanche is a mass of snow, rock, ice, and soil that tumbles down a mountain. So it sounds like a pretty general term then. Yeah. So I think technically, like, landslides are considered avalanches. But when we're just talking about avalanches, we're thinking of things that are really snow slides rather than landslides of rocks and soil. Yeah. I usually think of just snow and ice as, like, the classical avalanche. But apparently the term is broader than that. It is, but for the purposes here, we're going to just call them avalanches and mean the snow and ice ones. Mm -hmm. I found that there was a lot of avalanches every single year. In the western U.S. alone, there's well over 100,000 avalanches. Despite how many avalanches there are, only about 150 people are killed by avalanches worldwide in an average year. That being said, most avalanches are small, but if you get hit by a big one, you're pretty much fucked. So let's get into the anatomy of an avalanche. There's a term called the starting zone, and this is where the initial fracture in the snow happens. It's usually high up on the mountain, but it can really appear anywhere. There's also a term called the avalanche track, and this is the path that the avalanche takes down the mountain. Something called the runout zone is where the avalanche ends, so that's where all the snow and debris that got carried down the mountain will be piled down. Also of note, even though it's not really anatomy per se, a really big avalanche can actually compress the air on the mountain as it rushes down the slope. The compressed air can get so severe that it blows the windows out of houses, so even getting hit by the air blast can fuck you over. There are two main kinds of snow avalanches. So from less dangerous to more dangerous, we have loose snow avalanches. This is sometimes called sloughs, which is S-L-U-F-F, not S-L-O-U-G-H, even though it is snow that's sloughing off the side of the mountain. This kind of avalanche is rarely deadly because it's loose snow, but larger ones can destroy buildings or even push you into a crevasse or off a cliff. So don't underestimate them. Now picture a mountain in your head and then put a little dot on the mountain. That little dot is where the slough will start and then it's going to fan out from there as it proceeds down the mountain. So slab avalanches are the really deadly ones. A slab avalanche happens when there's a weak layer of snow covered with a hard layer of compacted snow. If the weak layer collapses, the compacted part can break off. So imagine a whole cohesive chunk of snow breaking off kind of en masse and hurtling down the mountain. Within three seconds, the slab of ice can be going as quickly as 20 miles per hour, and within five seconds, it can actually reach up to 80 miles per hour. The slab itself can be as big as half a football field. So just like fucking picture a literal football field, and then imagine a slab of packed snow that fills that entire area up, and it's one to three feet deep, and it might weigh up to 100, sorry, 1 million tons, which is still a lot. So it's a lot of snow going very, very fast. And it's also going to get broken up as it travels down the mountainside. So you're going to have smaller and smaller chunks in addition to the large chunks. And you might 
get kind of a mist that rises off of it finally because of the dust that's rising up from the ice. Slab avalanches are also really dangerous because chances are, just the way they're constructed, the slab that breaks off is going to be above you and then you're below it. So it's actually running straight towards you, unlike some other kinds of avalanches. So that last bit that you mentioned where things can break off of that slab, does that mean that those big ice chunks can become airborne and like hit you from the air above you? Yeah, yeah. So this kind of avalanche and other ones, but I think this one in particular, because it's going so fucking fast and it's Mm -hmm. like big chunks, if you imagine them like being sent down a ramp, if that's just like the contours of the mountain, they can become airborne and then like, I guess, crush you. That's crazy. It's like the stuff of nightmares. Now I've read something interesting that if you're seeing slough of like new loose snow, that might actually be a sign that you're less at risk for a slab avalanche. And the reason for this is that if conditions are existing such that some snow is falling, like down the mountain as an avalanche, but it's only the new snow, that means that probably all like the hard packed snow underneath is structurally sound enough that it's not going to break off too. So if you're seeing little baby avalanches, you might be safe from like a big avalanche. So we're not like snowboarding skiing people. We, I don't think I've ever been to a ski resort. Okay, I've been to a ski resort, but in the summer. I've never been to a ski resort when one could actually ski. Yeah, and where I was trying to go with this is, does that mean that as somebody who does participate in those sports, that it's a good thing to see little bits of that slough snow causing many avalanches or no? I don't know if that is necessarily true because I think all avalanches are potentially dangerous right and i didn't actually see that advice on more than like one website so take it with a grain of salt Uh but they were just not looking at it as hey oh look little baby avalanches yay but just that it could be an indication that you're not going to be necessarily crushed to death by one of like the big boys like is it a good sign to see those little slough avalanches and it sounds like it's not like a widespread consensus on that yeah it's questionable and it's confusing a little bit difficult because it really depends, and I'll get into this more later, on the duration of time that uh-huh. the change has been happening to the mountain. So if you've been having a lot of snow in a very short amount of time, then that's going to create more instability on the mountain. Uh-huh. Whereas if you had the same amount of snow spread across multiple days, uh-huh. then that's less, that's less dangerous because there's more time for the mountain to kind of adjust structurally, if that makes any sense, to that new snow burden. So if it's like a bunch of fresh snow and then you're seeing like little mini avalanches from that, then you could still get a big one if it reaches that tipping point, if that makes any sense. Got it. So if you want to have like a safe session skiing or snowboarding, then you would want to look for like a stable precipitation pattern for like the couple of weeks leading up to when you're going. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into more things you can look at. But one of the things to look at is making sure there's no rapid weather changes, mm-hmm. no rain, nothing crazy like that that could kind of like tip the balance against you. There's also a slow-moving cousin of the slab avalanche, which is called a glide avalanche. And for a glide... So in a glide avalanche, rain melts the snow enough that the whole snowpack becomes dislodged kind of together. But instead of hurtling down the mountain when you're like a slab avalanche, a glide avalanche is just going to gradually slide down the mountain. And so if you get up to the mountain, you might actually be able to see the marks left behind as it slides down the mountain. I was trying to think of like a metaphor for like a glide versus a slab avalanche. So if the slab avalanche is a cheetah that's going to chase you down and brutally murder you, which I don't think cheetahs do, but let's just pretend, then the glide avalanche is the sloth that you see like a mile away and is probably going to be nice to you, but it still has those really long talons and could maybe murder you if it wanted to. 
So be careful with any kind of avalanche, including glide ones, because they can still be dangerous. Now, slosh avalanches are the weirdest and possibly the most rare. They only occur very, very far north where you find actual permafrost. Basically, if it rains or water somehow otherwise pools on top of the permafrost because it's completely frozen and impermeable, it can destabilize the snowpack from kind of beneath and create a slushy avalanche. And one other interesting thing about the slushy ones, most avalanches are going to happen at 35 to 45 degrees of slope on the mountain, but these slushy ones happen on much flatter land, so it's actually going to be closer to 20 degrees of slope on the mountain. So what I found really interesting about this topic is that these different types of avalanches, which I never knew about, are very similar in setup to the fiery equivalent, which is the volcanoes, which we talked about a couple weeks back. And this sounds to me like the slush avalanches, where it's not necessarily fast. And also, I think the other kind, which was the, uh, the slough avalanche, they're a lot like the magma or lava flow ones, where it's kind of like a steady ooze of lava, as opposed to like a pyroclastic flow, which is, I think, a lot closer to the slab avalanche. Yeah, including in terms of like how quickly it will kill you. Now, one interesting thing is we talked about in the Volcanoes one how like a really steep mountain is going to mean like a big explosion. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily translate 100% to avalanches. And that's because there's kind of a sweet spot for avalanches where it's like that 35 to 45 degrees. And if it's a lot like less steep than that, you're less likely to get avalanches, but you still can. You could get these like rare slush ones, but it's less likely the flatter it is. And if it's super steep then it's also less likely. It's like a bell curve. It's huh. also less likely because it's basically constantly sloughing off the snow. Ah. So you really, it's like that in-between zone where it's like that 35 to 45 degrees where it's most dangerous just because it's able to pile up enough, but then reach a tipping point where then it kind of all falls off together. That makes a lot of sense. I never thought of it like that. Now, there's another dimension to consider for both slab avalanches and slough avalanches, and that's the composition of the snow itself. Both slabs and sloughs can be categorized as either dry avalanches or wet avalanches, depending on the, like, the moisture in the snow itself. So when you think about it, dry avalanches are basically straight up snow, and they're going to be the ones that are going 60 to 80 miles per hour max, so the really fast ones. Whereas wet avalanches are comprised of wetter snow, either from rainfall or snow melt or from whatever, and they're going to be much, much slower, and they won't be more than 10 to 20 miles per hour. So I've got a couple of different thoughts about this, but I always thought that in terms of causing danger, it's either going to be centered around speed or mass. And it sounds like in this case, it might actually be a little bit contradictory to my head because something that's wet is going to be more massive than something dry. Like a wet sock weighs more than a dry sock. But it sounds like in this case, the more wet slushy snow and like those wet avalanches move three times slower. So is there like a differential in the danger or damage it can cause between the quote unquote fast but dry avalanches and the wet but slow ones? Yeah, the most dangerous kind of avalanche is going to be a dry slab avalanche. Because if you think about it, that compacted snow, if you had water in it, it would kind of start breaking down a little bit. Like it'd be, it'd be squishier. But if you have dry compacted slabs and it's sliding over either uh -huh. ice or like loose snow underneath of it, that's just going to be like a hard thing going really fast downhill. And it's going to break up into chunks and stuff. But the fact that it's like so cohesive and can be broken into chunks like that means that it's that dangerous. So that's how it's going to like pick up speed so fucking fast. So in addition to the previously mentioned kinds of avalanches, 
There's also two other kinds of cold mountain avalanches apart from slab and slough ones, and those are the icefall avalanche and the cornicefall avalanche. Icefall avalanches are caused by glaciers that spill over the edge of a mountain, kind of like a waterfall, and they're made of deadly ice instead of water. This can happen seemingly at random, so you should avoid any known problem areas as much as possible. It's not entirely random, though, even though it appears to be so. Glaciers can get waves inside of them that last days or even months, and this can be enough to push the edge over the side of a mountain, thus causing an ice fall. So if there's been a period of lots of ice falls, it's probably because there's wave activity above in the glacier. Likewise, if there's a period of fewer ice fall avalanches, it's because the glacier has relatively less wave activity happening internally. So I was looking this up and I didn't really get a lot of sense into this. What does it mean by wave activity inside the glacier? I also do not understand this because to me, a glacier is solid and doesn't move. But I know glaciers do move because like, okay, I'm really into like the Arctic exploration thing. And they would have to like if you're doing like the Northwest Passage, right? And you're trying to like cut across the Arctic. The glaciers themselves would move and then eventually the ice would become trapped around the boats. And they would hear like the groaning of the ice itself moving. So ice moves and glaciers move. I just don't understand the physics of what causes a wave within something that appears to be solid to us. Moving on to the last kind of avalanche we're covering today, which is the cornice fall avalanche. I had no idea what a cornice was before researching this. So if you're like me and you don't know what it is, picture a sharp ridge on a mountain. Now picture a little lip of snow getting blown over that edge of the ridge until it forms an overhang. If the cornice breaks off, it can either cause an avalanche when it lands or break up into chunks and become an avalanche unto itself. It's not normally super dangerous as an avalanche, but still be super careful around these cornices and especially on top of the cornice. They're not structurally sound and you can cause the whole thing to break off and send you plummeting downwards. I've even read cases where they can break off further back from the edge than you would expect so you're less safe than you think you are. I think this is a great segue for going into the reasons why an avalanche might start in the first place. According to National Geographic, quote, storminess, temperature, wind, the steepness of the slope, terrain, vegetation, and general snowpack conditions are all factors that influence whether an avalanche happens and what type occurs, end quote. Avalanches can be caused by earthquakes. Basically, the vibrations from the earth can cause the snow to shift. And like we mentioned earlier, Avalanches can also be caused by fresh snowfall, and this causes the snow to press upon the snow beneath and cause it to shift structurally. Wind is actually also a leading cause of avalanches. It can take snow from one side of the mountain and move it to the other side rapidly, much faster than real snow could ever fall from the sky. This rapid accumulation of snow is called wind loading. It honestly doesn't take much though. Something as trivial as somebody skiing on the mountain can cause structurally unsound snow to kick off an avalanche. In fact, the vast majority of avalanches in which somebody gets hurt, which is over 90%, are caused by humans. Now, I know you're really interested in this kind of stuff, so why don't you go into the kind of dangers that an avalanche can present? Slab avalanches can go up to 200 miles per hour, like we mentioned, and weigh 1 million tons. So in those circumstances, imagine being hit by like a massive, heavy train dragged, and then thrown into anything in the path before you ultimately become trapped in what's basically concrete. So you're going to be buried, you could get broken bones, you could get head injuries, so make sure you're wearing a helmet if you're doing those outside sports. And honestly, you can just get straight up killed like your roadkill. 
I remember reading this story and I, I need to figure out which one it was, but basically it was, I think it was an Everest one where they were climbing and they saw one of the people that they knew get wiped out by an avalanche and they saw like eyeballs, like individual eyeballs with stalks that had been like ripped out of this person's head. And it was a really graphic scene. Like when I picture an avalanche, like in a movie, it's clean, right? Like you just get wiped down the mountain and you're gone. And that can happen, but I've also read accounts of where someone gets so destroyed and smeared that there's like blood streaks, like bits of chunks of flesh and clothing and stuff. It, it can be really, really violent. Chances are, though, if you've been swept up by an avalanche, you're going to get buried. And we'll talk more about techniques to avoid that later, but your most likely death is going to be asphyxiation. So basically, carbon dioxide is going to build up in your little bubble in the concrete of snow. Because it takes so long for people to find you, you won't necessarily run out of oxygen, more just that there's going to be so much carbon dioxide that you keep rebreathing that it builds up and that's ultimately what kills you. Knowing what we know now about how dangerous all kinds of avalanches can be, let's move into the things that we should do in order to prevent that from happening in the first place. I think a great place to start is looking at how the pros do things. They use a combination of wind, weather, and other kind of testing implements to estimate the likelihood of an avalanche. These are many of the same things you can check yourself, except that they're experts, obviously, and it's extremely difficult to accurately predict an avalanche. There's also some cases where ski resorts will actually create controlled avalanches to prevent bad ones from happening, and this is a good thing for you. So even if you're not a pro, you can still examine the situation and ask yourself a few questions. One, are you in an area that avalanches frequently happen in? So you might actually be able to tell if there's avalanche tracks, you might be able to see them as kind of bald spots on the mountain. So if you're looking and you're wondering why this one part of the mountain inexplicably has no trees, but there's trees everywhere else, it might be because there's been a lot of avalanches and it's kind of like a common track for them and it's just wiped all the trees out. You can also look at the bottom of the mountain to get a clue. If there's a bunch of snow piled up at the bottom, that's probably evidence of previous avalanches that just kind of end up at the bottom of the mountain. And then like we talked about earlier, you can also look at the slope of the mountain and see, is it in that kind of prime 35 to 45 degree slope? If you're out there skiing or snowboarding, it probably is. This is apparently like primo angle for both doing sports and also for avalanches, which is a bad kind of coalescence. You can also look at the tree density. So thick old trees are going to actually help keep the snowpack anchored down. So if you think about like erosion control when you're planting trees and stuff like that to keep the soil in place. Big, old, thick trees do the same thing for snowpack. But if you have only like sparse, thin trees, those aren't going to help anchor it as much. And they're just going to be things to like smash your body into if you do get carried away by an avalanche. And then like I said earlier, if you're seeing no trees in one particular area, that's likely somewhere the avalanches occur frequently. You also want to ask yourself, how much sun does the slope get? At least in the, the area that we are in the Northern Hemisphere. In the winter, the low sun slopes are going to tend to get dry avalanches. And in the springtime, the higher sun slopes are going to tend to get wet avalanches. But apparently you're supposed to completely ignore this advice if you're around the equator or in the Arctic, because it doesn't matter in those places. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't matter for them. Also consider if the weather has been changing rapidly in the past couple days or weeks. Slow changes will give the snow time to adjust gradually and stabilize whereas rapid changes can precipitate avalanches. Consider if an avalanche were to hit you, how bad would that be for you? And also, just as importantly, where would that take you? Is it going to push you off of a cliff or into a crevasse? Consider all of those points because 
you might not even care about the impact. You're really going to care about what it takes you into after the fact. So one of the most important things you can do to avoid being killed by an avalanche is to make sure that you're prepared. And a big part of that is making sure you're bringing appropriate gear for your day out in the mountain. And of all the things that you're going to be hearing on this list, the most important one is the avalanche beacon. You need to make sure you have a working one for every single person in your group. You also want to make sure you're wearing helmets. I know they don't look really cool, but if you're going to be hit by an avalanche and maybe hit a tree or like hit your head on the ground, you really want to be wearing a helmet. Other stuff to include like first aid kits, whistles, headlamps, and I read something to be sure to use this at night, especially if you're waiting for rescue helicopters, because if you haven't had time to start a fire, they might be able to see the light from your helmet right there. And you also want to have a shovel, like a collapsible shovel that you can use to undig people, (laughs) undig people, (laughs) dig people out and unbury them. And also carry like a little bivy with you in case hypothermia isn't going to kill someone who's been like buried in an avalanche before they die of the carbon dioxide poisoning. But if you get them out and you're waiting for rescue, having a bivy could keep them warm and alive. Also fire starter for the same reason. Make sure you brought your phone and extra batteries, or if your phone doesn't have the SOS new thing, make sure you have like one of the GPS emergency SOSs. And then make sure you're bringing some extra warm layers as well if you've got room in your pack. And when you're digging somebody out, if you're worried about hypothermia, obviously dig them out first. But if you've got their face out and they're not imminently going to die and you're starting to sweat, you might want to change clothes or slow down because if you let yourself sweat through your clothes, you're going to give yourself hypothermia. You've got to make sure you're staying warm but dry. As far as essential procedures go, make sure that you know CPR or have somebody in your group that can perform CPR. Ideally, everybody knows how to do CPR, since you may have to resuscitate somebody who has been buried underneath the snow. Also consider taking an avalanche companion rescue course so you know exactly what to do and won't panic or maybe not panic as much or even waste time trying to figure out what you should be doing. You may also have an option to call the pros. Many locales have avalanche centers that you can call to get an avalanche report like on the daily and give you the current stability of the snow. You can also try testing the snow yourself, like jumping up and down on it even with your skis in like a safe spot to see if you can make a mini avalanche. And if you don't, it might be stable. And again, if you're a pro or you've taken a class and have experience, you may be able to do a snow pit or shear test, which are these complicated things where like, you dig a hole and you poke it. There's all kinds of weird things that happen to understand the composition and integrity of the snowpack. Also, as much as you can, try to never ski, snowboard, hike, or snowmobile alone. You're going to want a friend to be there to dig you out if you need to. Also, only send one person down the mountain at a time. It's much more difficult to successfully rescue an entire group of people rather than just one or two. Also, try to make sure that everyone in your group is familiar with the beacons that you're using because you don't want to be stuck in a situation where you have the tech that could save you, but no one's actually bothered to test it or use it. And make sure that everyone's practiced digging someone out of an avalanche. I just want to go into that a little bit. So I saw at least in Utah and probably in other places, in public parks, they actually bury and hide beacons for people to try to find with their own beacons in receive mode. So you can kind of get practice like finding one or multiple beacons. They don't want you to dig it up if you found it though, because obviously then it won't be in the right place anymore so that they can find it easily, even though they could because they also have the beacons, but you're not supposed to dig it up. And if you want practice actually digging something up out of the earth that's got a beacon on it, they recommend you have a friend bury it for you. 
and then you go find it and you dig it up. So they mean literally go out there, unearth something from the snow to get like a feel for how hard the snow is. We're not skiers, but apparently if you're skiing, you should do something called a slope cut, which means going across the area where an avalanche may begin rather than straight down it. This means that hopefully you can get out of the way if you accidentally start an avalanche. Try to stay out of backcountry areas as well. It's less controlled since there's nobody out there doing managed avalanches. And help is less likely to happen because it's only going to be coming from people that you're with, at least in the time frame that you're still going to be rescuable before you die of carbon dioxide buildup, for example. Be extra cautious in the winter months. Avalanches can happen at any time, but the most snow is going to fall during the winter. And like we talked about earlier, new snow alters the structure of the snowpack, which might hit that tipping point and actually cause an avalanche to happen. If you're out there and you hear a large, like, woomph noise, just get the fuck out because that could be the snowpack collapsing on itself, which means that it's very unstable. That sound doesn't mean that an avalanche is happening at that moment necessarily, just that it's very likely that one might happen because the whole thing is unstable. And one more side note on icefalls, which I think are way more specific, but just it's interesting to talk about. Don't linger under them and don't camp under them. So reducing any time under them is also going to reduce your chances of being like randomly washed off the side of the mountain by like a waterfall of ice. And one more thing, icefall avalanches are also more likely to occur during the day because temperatures are warmer. So if you have to pass under one, try to do it at night when it's nice and cold. It's not a guarantee, but it does improve your odds. All right, that was all the things that you should do prior to an avalanche. Let's say in the worst case scenario, you do all of those things, but now you're caught in the midst of an avalanche. What do you do? If you're in the path of an avalanche, try to get out of the way. If you're at the top of a slab that's breaking off, you may be able to jump above where it's broken, but only if you're already right there. So just to clarify, imagine you're looking at the side of a mountain. There's suddenly like a big crack in it. If you're down on the bottom side of that, if you are able to get like above where the crack is, then you're not going to be impacted by the avalanche. And I know that that sounds really difficult to do and you have to be like in the right place at the right time. But if you have the opportunity, take it. I might be misremembering, but I think that a few people, I believe they were Sherpas in one of the Everest expeditions, or it may have been a different one, maybe K2, but there was an avalanche that was about to happen and they were able to just step out of the way of it and then they survived and a bunch of other people got like washed out down below. So if you can just immediately get out of the way, just take it and do it. If you're out on the mountain skiing or snowboarding, what you're supposed to do is try to get up a little bit of speed just going downhill and then move downhill and to the side to kind of get out of the main path of the avalanche. Now, if you're on a snowmobile, I thought it would be the same thing, but it's not quite. So you don't have to pick up speed, so just gun it. And then what I've read is you're supposed to just go ASAP in whatever direction you're already going. Now, that's kind of counterintuitive because if you're going up the mountain and it's coming towards you, I feel like you should probably turn away. But I read that wherever you're going, just gun it and just get out of the area ASAP. And hopefully that means that you're like going perpendicular away from it. But even if you're going downhill, you're not supposed to try to maneuver. You're supposed to just like fucking haul ass and go. And also one important thing I read, if you're on a snowmobile, don't stop to help a friend unless you're clear of the avalanche or you know that someone could rescue both of you. And that's because many of the avalanche injuries and deaths that happen are because one snowmobiler went to go help another snowmobiler and then they both die. So particularly in snowmobiles, get yourself out and then go help your friend rather than having you both be trapped in the snow together. 
If you're on foot or you can't get away to the side of the avalanche path in time, try to get behind a tree and hold on for fucking life. If you can't get to a tree or you get knocked loose from that tree, it's not going to look good for you. I've read that you should try to quote-unquote swim upwards through the snow as best as you can, but remember this is going anywhere from 20 miles an hour to 60 to 80 miles an hour. So you're basically working against physics since we're also much, much denser than snow. You're going to sink like a rock, but trying to swim upwards against the path of the snow might be able to counterbalance it a little bit and get you just a little bit closer towards the surface, which is where you need to be for air. I read a case where trying to swim upwards like through the avalanche actually really helped. So this avalanche ended up running about 50 miles an hour, but this guy who was like basically a pro skier, so he's in really good shape, was able to swim up enough that he was totally free from the avalanche from the waist up when it finally stopped. So given that he was totally alone in the wilderness with no beacon, nothing, the fact that he did this saved his life because otherwise he would have been completely entombed in the, the snow and no one would have been coming for him. And so take that to heart and like really fight as hard as you can to get your face up. So you're twice as likely to survive if you're face up rather than face down. And that's because the way your breath works, it's going to be warmer and that's going to partially melt the snow. So get kind of like a natural bubble that forms around your face. And again, the more space you have around yourself, the more room you give yourself to breathe, which means more time before that carbon dioxide really builds up and might kill you. If you can, you should also try to stick one of your hands or both of your hands up in the air while you're still being carried through the avalanche, because this can help other people locate you quickly. And you might even make it possible for yourself to dig yourself out. Although this last point is pretty highly unlikely. You basically want to get yourself set up while you're being carried because once it stops, you're effectively stuck in concrete. That being said, you have much less agency than you may think as the avalanche hits you. One particular avalanche survivor, who's a skier named Bruce Temper, said that an avalanche, quote, pretty much has its way with you. And choice is one of those things you think you might have before you're caught in an avalanche, but never afterward. So what should you do if you're now inside the snow after you've been kind of bowled over and taken down the mountain by an avalanche? What you want to try to do is make yourself as much of a space as you can to breathe. If it hasn't set around you, kind of like expand your chest, make sure your face is up, do the most you can. And if you're still intact enough that you have your wits about you once you've stopped, you now are most at risk for dying from carbon dioxide buildup in the little bubble that you have in the snow. And the snow is going to be a lot harder than you realize. It could even be as hard as concrete. So despite what you might think, you will not be able to dig yourself out with your hands, like at all. I read that you can try punching your way out, but if it's as hard as concrete, I don't see that getting you very far, especially if you're very far down in the snow. You might try it in case you're just like six inches down, but I wouldn't kill myself trying to do that. I also read that you should not try spitting to see which way is up. You're probably not going to be able to dig yourself out anyway, and it's not going to do you any good if you're trying to like figure out which way's up so you can get out. Just don't even bother. Because hopefully you were prepared enough to have your avalanche beacon on and working, and you've got friends there who are hopefully already starting to find you via your beacon and digging you out. Now your friends are going to have to be fast. If you're dug out within 15 minutes, you have a good chance, 93% chance, that you're going to be alive. At 45 minutes, if they pull you up at that point, you only have a 20 to 30% chance of survival. At two hours, you're basically dead and they're just digging your body out. So they have to move fast. Now you might be asking, how do you actually dig somebody out since it's so difficult? First off, 
before you do any digging, try to keep an eye on where they got taken to help narrow down where you should be looking in the first place. Now, if you think there's likely going to be more avalanches like imminently and you'll die if you help your friend, don't make that choice. Go out and actually get help from professionals. You dying right now isn't going to help your friend. And if you die too, then no one's going to come save either of you because they don't know that you need help. But if it is relatively safe enough, you want to get out there ASAP and don't bother getting help until you've been trying to find and dig your friends out for at least 30 to 60 minutes. It's just going to take too long to go get help, and those first few minutes are crucial for them surviving. Make sure everybody in your party or group has their avalanche beacons set to receive, and then zigzag down the mountain safely. Try to avoid triggering another avalanche that could bury your friend even deeper. Don't just rely on that beacon, though. Also look for things like hands or skis or other markers that might be sticking up out of the snow. Apparently, if you see a snowmobile, your friend is most likely to be uphill from that snowmobile. I found this fact really interesting because when I visualized a person like trying to get away from an avalanche downhill, I imagined them getting thrown from the avalanche and so they'd be like below the snowmobile. But the fact that the snowmobile is going to be below them and they'll be up above is maybe because the snowmobile has more momentum, I don't know. But just keep that in mind that your friend might actually be like above the vehicle that they were on when you're trying to find them. Now, if your friend didn't have a beacon, which is bad, you're going to have to start methodically probing the ground with your ski poles or with a branch to see if you can even hit them. This is going to take a really fucking long time, but get help if it's been, like I said, over an hour and you still haven't found them. If multiple people have been buried by the avalanche, your focus needs to be getting the most people out breathing as quickly as possible. So go for shallow burials first, dig their faces out, and make sure that they're breathing and then move on to the next person. If you can get somebody out part way but it's getting dark and cold, don't die out there, call for help. A lot of places were charged for rescue and many won't, but it's better than dying. You may also be found by a rescue dog specifically trained to find people buried within an avalanche. The last thing I wanted to bring up before we wrap up this episode is one of the most famous possible and probably likely avalanche cases, and that's the case of the Dyatlov Pass incident. So I know most folks know the story already, but I'll do a quick refresher for folks who don't know or it's been a while. Basically, (laughs) researchers, rescuers found the bodies of seven men and two women in February 1959 in the northern Ural Mountains, and that was in the Soviet Union at the time. All nine of these people have been dead for a month. Their tent was sliced open, Their bodies were found half a mile down the mountain away from their tent. Every single person was barefoot and many of them were fully naked. It was determined that most of them had died from hypothermia. Some of them had died from traumatic injuries like head trauma. There was other weird things. They had some weird injuries like someone was missing their eyes. Someone was missing their tongue. Somebody was missing their eyebrows. So just like a lot of like weird things had happened and it turns out that That group had cut into the snow the evening before, like before they died, to kind of level it off so they could put their tent down. And they didn't get hit by the avalanche, like the supposed avalanche, for hours. And this is where it gets interesting for this episode. Because usually when you think about creating an avalanche, because, you know, most avalanches that kill people are going to be caused by people, like 90 or 95% of them. And it happens almost immediately, right? Like you ski, avalanche happens. In this case, 
they take out the reinforcement holding a slab in place is the theory, right? Then they put their tent in that place, but it's still stable enough, just not anchored at the bottom, that it doesn't immediately collapse on them. And then that night, there were really strong winds that blew in a bunch more snow, and that influx of wind and the snow caused the slab to dislodge in the early morning, forcing the group to kind of flee in the middle of the night, so that would be why they cut their tent open and then ran into the darkness. And it's likely at that point they could have become disoriented, gone through this thing called paradoxical undressing where you feel really hot because of your hypothermia and you actually fully strip naked. And then one by one in the darkness and the disorientation, they succumb to the cold. Wasn't there something to do with like radiation involved or was that kind of not ruled as a cause of death? Yeah, I think there was a bunch of theories about what happened. There was like radiation theories. There was like asteroid theories or something there was like literally like abominable snowman theories like i'm not kidding that was like a valid well not valid but there was a theory so there was also one about like a weird sound that could mess with them and make them do weird things but regardless there was a whole bunch from the resounding theory right now is that it was something called a delayed slab avalanche so they had a slab avalanche that like tore through everything but it was delayed just because they kind of imagine a slab they cut the bottom off but it's still like heavy enough and stable more snow comes, and then hours later, it breaks loose and tears through their camp. So speaking of the Dyatlov Pass incident, there was a movie a little while back called Devil's Pass, which detailed, obviously, the incident, right? It was a horror movie of sorts, and I would say it's kind of like sci-fi-ish as well. It obviously was not very good because I'm struggling to even remember what happened into it. But suffice it to say that a lot of it was attributed to like supernatural phenomena in the film. And there's things like there's monsters involved, there's like radiation, there's like military testing. There's even at the end, like some kind of time travel involved. So definitely more of like a popcorn flick if you're into that kind of thing. I remember it being mildly entertaining, but I think the first half was particularly boring. It was like kind of a slow burn kind of thing. So if you're into that, you may like it. It's a Euro-ish kind of movie. So Uh, Maybe that's why I didn't like identify with it immediately, but it definitely changes tone and pacing near the end. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, try uh, watching that film out, but it's not a very accurate, obviously not an accurate at all depiction of what should have happened for this uh, incident. I will say it does have a really cool poster, which is why I wanted to watch it in the first place, but don't be super pulled in by the poster because I was pretty disappointed by the movie. Anyway, I think that's all that we have for Avalanches this week. Don't forget that we have a website, inthelabyrinthofdeath.com. You can reach us at inthelabyrinthofdeath on Instagram. So follow us, leave us a review if you get a chance. We'd really appreciate it. Tune in next week for another episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, send us your near misses with avalanches or death to inthelabyrinthofdeath at gmail.com. We'll see y'all next week. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. This podcast is researched and presented by Enthusiast not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals.